Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I am Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. So last week on February 28th, uh, President Trump held denuclearization negotiations with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Vietnam. Uh, the talk collapsed because North Korea felt that they were unable to meet the demands made by the U.S. Uh, there will obviously be a lot of reports coming out in the coming weeks analyzing the summit, and we here at Policy Punchline think it's the perfect time for us to kind of touch on issues related to North Korea, uh, relations uh, with, with U.S., China, as well as issues just related to global security in general. So here in the studio today with me is Professor Courtney Fon. She is an assistant professor of international relations in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, we'd like to especially thank Princeton Center on Contemporary China for so- sponsoring this episode and for connecting us with Professor Fong. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Fon. Thank you for having me, Tiger. Awesome, Professor Fon. So you are in Princeton today presenting your newest paper, Just Not in the Neighborhood, China's Views on the Application of Responsibility to Protect Asia. This paper really goes deep in explaining China's role in protecting North Korea. And uh, a lot of your research actually focuses on how rising powers like China and India um, address those norms and provisions for global security issues. So uh, I wanted to really ask you to give us some background because I guess me or most of the listeners there don't really know uh, the, the sort of frameworks for intervention or global security or United Nations Security Council. So would you mind just giving us a very broad general intro about some of the frameworks you'll be discussing? Sure. So maybe I'll start from sort of the most narrow first um, about this idea and this evolving concept called the responsibility to protect. So the responsibility to protect was codified in 2005 at the World Summit. Um, And it was basically this idea that it was going to reframe the norm of sovereignty away from being a right of states to being a responsibility. So it's a shift away from saying you have the right to do what you believe is fit within your territorial space, within your territorial sovereignty, to saying that states have a responsibility to populations within their territory. And so it was the idea that you have a responsibility to protect people from mass atrocities within your territory, and if and when these responsibilities could not be met by the state under very particular conditions, then the, inter- then the international community itself has to act. Um, Of course, that initial idea put out in 2001, by the time it got to the 2005 World Summit, had actually become a little bit tighter. So this idea of the responsibility to protect, or its shorthand of R2P, had seen that now, in practice, we had to be able to show that a state was definitely demonstrably, manifestly failing. That's the key phrase, manifestly failing at protection. Um, which, of course, is very debatable how you show that a state is, quote unquote, manifestly failing at its protection responsibilities um, to its populations. They'd also figured out that you had to have any invocation of this term and any sort of applicability to make it live had to be through a UN Security Council authorized resolution. So sort of saying that only the UN Security Council could invoke use of this term. 
also making the case that you could only apply this term under four mass crimes already covered under international law, international humanitarian law, namely genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. So again, it's not much of a departure in that way. And then the idea in 2005 that the international community had to act in a sort of timely and decisive manner. Again, words that are meant to sound like they're clear, but actually are very much open for debate. And so the way that we now conceptualize this R2P norm is that it's basically been broken down now into three pillars. So pillar one, the state has primary protection responsibilities for its populations. So that's not very controversial for most people. Pillar two, that the international community should assist states meet meeting their particular protection responsibilities. So it's still about how the international community can help you as a state leader maintain control and protection of population groups within your territory, not contesting your ability to lead. And then pillar three, that the international community should be prepared to use force and other such activities via the UN Security Council if peaceful means fail. So this is potentially the one that has sort of the most um, electrifying concern for states that are concerned about reinterpretations and redefinitions of sovereignty. So in this case of North Korea, what kind of aspects of those pillars or interventions or R2P is, is, is this case actually touching on? Um, what are some of the concerns? What are some of the sensitivities there that we need to pay attention to? Sure. No, that, that's a great question. So I think the the whole point is that the the phrase responsibility to protect doesn't come out of nowhere. It has to be applied um, and eventually get it applied to a particular case. So someone has to take the first step, um, be the entrepreneur to sort of say that this case, the level of mass abuse has gone on so high that it now meets the threshold of invoking the term responsibility to protect. And so in that case, that entrepreneur was the 2014 Commission of Inquiry. Um, the 2013 Commission of Inquiry that issued its report in 2014, clearly linking the mass abuse going on within the DPRK as, as a concern to such a level now that we must invoke the responsibility to protect. Um, the thing is, once you do that, it then sets off a whole bunch of different diplomatic procedures that eventually in this particular case now means that the UN Security Council has agreed to remain, quote, remain seized, um, quote unquote, of this particular country case issue, which now means that the DPRK and the associated debates about R2P and vis-a-vis -vis DPRK human rights abuses can now remain a topic of debate at the UN Security Council for the next three years. And so every year that you finally add it to the agenda, you add a year on that clock. And so that's why these words aren't so innocent. They're not so flaky. They're not such, you know, empty, um, empty signifiers per se. These words have very, very particular meaning, especially if you are a country like China, like India, um, like Brazil, um, of course, like the DPRK, that has some level of skepticism about the fair use of this language R2P. So China doesn't really want this R2P framework to be applied to North Korea. That's very much in contrast with, uh, I guess, its uh, reaction to Syria or Libya or anything. So what's what's going on there with China and the R2P case with North Korea? Well, I mean, I, I, I think there's a sort of a bunch of very practical concerns that that Beijing has to address. I mean, and, and, I, and I want to make it clear there that it has been 
a relative silence up until this Commission of Inquiry report. There really wasn't any sort of R2P verve for the North Korean case, despite there being, a, you know, a healthy amount of evidence that sort of mass abuse is chronic to the regime. And that, frankly, might have been part of the reasons put forward for why there's been very little R2P discussion, that R2P is designed for conflict outbursts, you know, these hotspot moments. It's not designed for these chronic cases of mass abuse. Um, they also have arguments that there's a chill effect, that because everyone knows that the North Koreans are an ally, contiguous border state to China, well, then there's no need to talk about R2P in relation to the DPRK, because, of course, China would never permit this to happen. Um, I think, again, this sort of fascination with R2P Pillar 3 armed intervention, which seems kind of pointless against a military arsenal that the DPRK has to its disposal. And again, the social construction of the North Korean case is really being a story about nuclear politics, these high politics um, about the use of nuclear weapons and the proliferation of nuclear technology. So all of this is sort of pushing for there to be a very limited discussion. I really should stress that about R2P and North Korea up until the most recent years following the Commission of Inquiry's report. Um, I think, but that said, there are the obvious answers that China doesn't want any sort of massive change to its border ally, um, where China doesn't have top-down control over the introduced changes. But I think that it sort of overlooks the real issues contained within this report for the average Chinese diplomat, because the report itself does name China um, as actually being complicit in Pyongyang's um, in Pyongyang's ability to commit these mass abuses. And so sort of by recognizing China's role in its belief that these are all economic migrants entering China illegally, and by sending these economic migrants back to where they belong, i.e. the DPRK, that the report found that China was actually a handmaiden to permitting abuse to occur again against these, what the report saw as political refugees, refugees of conscience. So I think it puts China in a very, very limited space. And I think a, a more general problem that Beijing faces is that it's been very committed to the, to the preference about there being economic and social rights first. Out of all the different types of human rights to support, economic and social rights, the right to food, is one of the primary rights that Beijing sees ahead of the need to promote civil and political rights, the stereotypical Western view that the right to vote, et cetera, um, the right to a free press, that these are sort of the first steps that we should take in terms of promoting general human rights standards. And again, this Commission of Inquiry found a way to sort of understand how abuse is occurring in Pyongyang by the abuse of the right to food, the ability to control who gets to eat based upon their piety and their support to Pyongyang. And so this puts China in a very, very difficult position rhetorically. You've talked about the need to have the right to food and these economic and social rights first. It's been a consistent Chinese position um, in regards to all types of human rights discussions and debates. And now you have a country case where this commission has found that the state is purposely abusing the right to food. Well, what will Beijing do about this then? What is your response to this type of concern? And so I think the worry about waiting for that shoe to drop, um, that this pressure about you know your rhetoric is now caught up with you, do you have anything now to sort of offer in terms of a solution? That I think this is something um, that it presents particular difficulties for, for China. So in your opinion, how do you think China's going to really respond or resolve the, the North Korea problem? Well, I mean, I think to take a punt, because I am no 
you know, North Korea yeah. specialist. But I do think that Beijing has interest in sort of seeing stability. But I think there's a definite interpretation about what the word stability means. Um, and again, the terms are all relative. If the DPRK economy is collapsing to the point, as we saw in the 1990s, that you really did have higher numbers of North Korean so-called economic migrants entering China, then I think there are concerns that maybe stability, i.e. the permanence of this Kim regime, might come at particular cost for Beijing's own concerns about stability within Chinese territory. If there's an interpretation that stability might mean you have to put up with having um, a full-blown nuclear state that is antagonizing the global hegemon, the United States, and that, of course, comes under pressure for Beijing, then that might also be a sort of reinterpretation about the value of stability and what that means, the prominence of the North Korean priority within Chinese foreign policy issues of the day. So I think it's fair to say, at least from what I understand, that there is a fair consideration and rethinking and debate about how China deals with a very difficult state like the DPRK. I guess the second continued question on that is, will China continue to offer aid to, to North Korea against the U.S. sanctions? Because um, when we talk about humanitarian intervention, when we talk about those issues, that's a form of intervention, I guess, right? Because how, how is the position of, China, of, of the Chinese going to affect um, U.S.-North Korea denuclearization negotiations or, or so in the, in the future, you think? Well, from what I understand, I mean, there's in order to make the case that denuclearization is occurring, you need to also have the ability to have some type of checks with the compliance on those particular agreements, verbal, written, et cetera. And so that would obviously require Chinese buy-in um, in terms of being able to see what's moving in and out of North Korean territories, um, in terms of making sure that the North Koreans fully understand that the buck really does stop and that they can't turn to the Chinese for some type of get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, and there is evidence of Beijing sort of being willing to apply tougher and tougher sanctions. We do see those efforts on and off over the last couple of years. So certainly not to paint China at all as being the single most difficult player in this case. I think, unfortunately, that the situation is more complicated than that. So what impacts do we usually see with those uh, intervention actions on unstable states. I mean, we've seen Syria, Lib Libya, we're just talking about North Korea. Is intervention actually an effective method when, when it comes to making unstable states stabler? Sure. I think, I think it all depends who you talk to. Um, and I think it also depends what your metric is for promoting stability. I think it also depends strongly upon your time frame. And there's a huge amount of literature that says actually UN peacekeeping is a very important component in terms of promoting healthy, stable political societies that have some element of, you know, liberal features like the ability to vote, like um, a free and open press, like a basic and active civil society eventually. And there's a whole bunch of literature that looks at that. There's also the literature that shows us upfront in the immediate costs of intervention are actually very high and that you can sort of see the sort of the immediate short-term future for these states is typically very, very rocky. Um, and so you can sort of read all this peer-reviewed research, and so there is this very, very healthy debate. But again, it comes down to sort of having a basic 
frame of reference of what you mean by more stable. And I think, again, it's very easy from an academic perch sitting in an office to develop a data set. But there is this question, of course, is that when you have an intervention, that it does require some cost to occur. And so there is this, I think, a growing understanding now, certainly from what I can read of the policy debate by key actors, so the United States, um, the Brits, the French, the Chinese, the Russians, a very strong and keen arguments being made about sort of the point that if you want to intervene and you have to break eggs to make an omelet to use that, you know, to use that type of analogy. And so I think whether or not there's any sincerity placed on that, there is at least that recognition that there are high human costs that do come attached to some type of armed intervention in particular. So what have you discovered so far regarding uh, countries' voting patterns, uh, response patterns? on the UN Security Council when it comes to intervention things? Because I know you, um, your new book, which is titled China and Intervention at the UN Security Council Reconciling Status, will actually be published by Oxford University Press um, in the fall of 2019. So, so I'm really interested in hearing a little bit more about what you discovered. Well, I think um, one of the really interesting things about the very, you know, the very long odyssey that it was of trying to actually finish this book is that I think I learned a lot of these underlying assumptions don't actually quite hold. So part of the the book, the book investigates a very short research question that what explains China's position on intervention at the UN Security Council, especially because the Chinese position regarding intervention is fluid. And by, by sort of rationalist security maximizing explanations, you cannot explain why China voted in the apex cases where intervention is sort of cloaked in this big debate about the need to have foreign imposed regime change. So i.e. in order to resolve the Darfur crisis, we have to actually forcibly remove Omar al-Bashir from government. That is sort of one of the driving public discourse discussions going on in Washington, in London, in Paris, etc. You cannot explain why in that case China voted and sort of really forced consent out of Sudan, why China was the first to deploy to a peacekeeping mission there, an armed Chapter 7 peacekeeping mission, i.e. a mission that did not really require um, Sudanese consent. You can't really explain why China permitted stronger language regarding an ICC referral, um, which and ICC referrals, as you know from the case of Libya, have ended up with indictments for very senior officials within government. You also can't explain by sort of conventional, rational security maximizing explanations why the Chinese voted yes for an ICC referral and sanctions for Libya and why they abstained on the controversial no-fly zone vote that was then used to pave the way to basically execute the regime or why Beijing has you know, borne the cost of casting now at my last count, six vetoes alone in the Syria case, totally changing how China has viewed the application of the veto, because it's costly for China. China only has the UN Security Council. It doesn't have a NATO. It doesn't have an EU. And it has strong faith in the relevance and the importance of the UN Security Council as being the venue to address global peace and security. So basically, so to really turn back to your actual question, Tiger, I mean, I think to sort of highlight three things. One thing that I was um, surprised with by actually doing the research into these sort of apex cases, the toughest cases for China to address, where there is this huge debate about the need to have foreign imposed regime change as the means to solve these crises in Darfur, Sudan, in Libya, and in Syria, 
was that you can see actually that the so-called P3, the Western permanent players at the Security Council, so the Brits, the French, and the Americans, they don't necessarily move lockstep. And that it takes time for these three states to work out whether or not they have a common stance, and if they have a common stance, what they believe the appropriate response to be. So that was actually quite fascinating because a lot of the assumption I went in with was that the West has a very um, cohesive view. The West believes that these options are viable. The West promotes these types of robust human rights norms at the cost of other, um, at the cost of bearing other concerns and being willing to absorb certain costs. And I realized from having done the work that that's not necessarily true. Process tracing shows that it takes time for them to coalesce around a common foreign policy option. I think the second thing that I was very sort of surprised by from having done the book project too was that the book shows that China really is wrestling with a very peculiar type of problem and, and in fact that there is some applicability to other rising powers that China is looking to try and achieve and reconcile its own status dilemma, i.e. it's not interested in just sort of gaining status from an a from just the permanent members that the P3 that represent the great powers. China's also very concerned with staying within social appropriate standards um, set by the global south. So what regional groups have to say about intervention, what the host state has to say about intervention, China's acutely aware of this. And so the attempts to sort of try and please everyone and the priority placed upon that as a status goal, I thought that was also very interesting too. And I think just sort of the last takeaway that I had started the book with the working assumption, and this is what the small literature tells us, that China should be somewhat um, able to separate status concerns and discount status concerns um, in the case of the most important foreign policy problems because they talk about and they prioritize Chinese core interests. And again, one of the most important core interests being the sanctity and the health and stability of the CCP. So therefore, China's reluctance to promote regime change elsewhere, as the literature notes, for fear that it might be setting precedent that it does not want to see applied in the future towards Beijing. And there's a literature out there that talks about this problem of foreign-opposed regime change as an issue in Sino-US relations, um, issues about why China has such concerns about foreign-imposed regime change and intervention. But at least my research showed that sometimes this firewall, which is the term by Professor Ian Johnston at Harvard University, that this core interest firewall can sometimes be permeated. And I think that was sort of the most fascinating takeaway for me. Do you think China will be successful in finding its role? Because I, I guess based on what you were saying, it's a very nuanced thing here. We, we can't just say China solely wants to expand the influence, nor can we say China just votes on, on one type of pattern. It really varies on a case-by-case -case basis. So do you think China will eventually find that that balance? What, what do you think that balance could be in terms of um, maintaining a push-and-pull relationship with the West, with all those, as, as well, I just, I guess, incorrectly phrased, unstable states? How do you, how do you see this thing shaping up? Well, I, I mean, I think China has to balance a bunch of interests that are, you know, reforming and changing at any given time. And I think we've seen definitely a primacy placed upon the need to protect Chinese nationals abroad. That's become a growing concern. Um, China deploys the most UN peacekeepers out of all members of the 
out of all of the permanent members at the UN Security Council. So China's numbers hover around about 2,300 troops a year at the moment, um, which far eclipses what the other members, the other permanent members, so the Brits, the Americans, the French, and the Russians deploy through the UN platform. And you can see a growing trend about China's sort of making sense of this type of deployment as the ability for China to protect its Chinese nationals doing work in places that are dangerous and crisis prone, where peacekeeping missions do tend to go. Um, I think at the same time, China has to make sure that it is in a position to actually do the job and do it well. And so there's a sense of caution about not signing on and not pushing for all these progressive changes that Beijing wants to make sure it fully understands what its position is regarding the protection of civilians, regarding concerns about arms control. And I think so this desire to operate in a very logical, methodical manner, as it relates again back to Chinese core principles about the five principles for peaceful coexistence, about the need to have non-interference in Chinese foreign policy goals, etc. There is this sort of dialectical conversation in terms of reforming these core ideas and these core principles for Chinese foreign policy as they apply to concerns on the ground today, i.e. where Chinese interests have truly gone global in terms of even before all of this BRI interest, um, in terms of investments abroad, in terms of Chinese workers abroad, in terms of the need to burnish the Chinese reputation for the Chinese people as at home, and also for foreigners abroad that are trying to make sense of what a rising China means for them and also for their own home countries. So you just mentioned, I think, a very interesting idea. You said China is putting more emphasis on protecting nationals abroad in, mm. in their uh, missions these days. So, And in fact, in your paper, Separating Intervention from Regime Change, you argued that China's repeated veto against intervention in Syria shows a significant shift from China's past strategic culture, where now China no longer continues to just passively follow the international norms, but actually seek to actively shape the rules, which I guess protecting nationals and finding that balance, as we just talked about, this was a part of the, the idea of um, actively shaping the, the rules. Would you mind, I guess, further elaborating on, on that idea? Like, how do you see the Western powers going to respond to China's new attempts to challenge the, the established international norms and shape its new norms? Sure. So I, I think, I think again, just to emphasize, I don't have the view that a lot of these norms are entirely stable or set in stone. But I do think from looking at that particular Syria case, that you can see that the Chinese have made a number of moves. I, I should also preface this for those that don't spend their day in, day out looking at this stuff that out of all the permanent members, so again, out of the P5, they're the only players that are allowed to have vetoes. If you cast a veto, then all debates about whatever the context or the content of that resolution draft is about is officially stopped. So you can literally stop things dead in their tracks. And I should emphasize again that China has the absolute lowest number of vetoes in total out of all of the P5. And again, because the costs are very high for Beijing, you get very bad press, you get a lot of blowback, you're forced to have to defend why you're willing to sort of stand up to the overall liberal drive within the international community. And that means putting yourself under a spotlight. Um, at the same time, it also, every time you cast a veto, it calls into question the ability of the UN Security Council to maintain its relevance today, 
within all the different orders that are operating globally, why should it be the UN Security Council that has the biggest say regarding questions of international peace and security if the UN Security Council itself cannot make up its mind to address mass abuse and you know the use of chemical weapons, et cetera, in the case of Syria. So it's a very, very bold move um, where Beijing had literally cast something like two and a half, two, three vetoes a decade. For Beijing now at this point, if I'm correct, to have cast six vetoes alone in the case of Syria, especially when a lot of the language that China was vetoing was relatively anodyne had been watered down to such an extent in negotiations that it wasn't some type of firebrand, no-fly zone plus, you know, we're going to go find these people that are doing bad things and make sure they're held accountable. Um, and I think, too, the second part of this also to realize is that it's in this particular case, um, the Syria case, where you start to see the Chinese rhetoric adapting and going China going forth and selling these ideas that, for example, the responsibility to protect should not be about the promotion of regime change. It should not be about um, armed intervention to sort of done willy-nilly with no concern about the consequence. You remove these heads of state and then look at the instability that's left behind in these states that have had sudden turnover of regime. And so you sort of see a very different Chinese diplomatic strategy, not just the use of the veto alone, but the use of the rhetorical adaptation to now sort of make regime change not look like such a positive thing, to make the responsibility to protect should be dragged back to its sort of bare bones interpretation of 2005, where we don't just think about armed intervention as the only way to interpret R2P. And so you sort of see this move, this diplomatic maneuvering in terms of massaging the content of resolutions that China ultimately ended up vetoing anyway. And so I do think, I don't want to use the word assertive, that whole thing I'm hoping that whole meme is gradually dying off. But I do think we do see a shift in how China is not so willing to stomach this passive acceptance for this sort of um, runaway train idea that all of these liberal norms have to be pushed to the absolute limit. And I think that's something very important to watch because China, other states like India, other states like Brazil, other states like South Africa, all these other rising powers also have these concerns which are largely reflected again in views held by a number of sort of developing country states. So not to give the idea that it's just China alone that is raising these worries. And there is a whole movement now on the small five trying to sort of prevent the UN Security Council from having the use of the veto in the most extreme cases of mass abuse. So again, there is this pressure that the role that the veto plays is one of the corollaries out of the sort of veto stretch that we've seen for Syria. So you just mentioned it's not just China alone that's trying to find its position here. Uh, but I guess my, my question here is I think a lot of people see China's veto or see some other countries' veto and they say, oh, China and Russia are just teaming up together against the P3, the, the Brits, the Americans, and the French. Is there actually a, a I guess, significant ideological divide in that sense? Or, or do you think... The, the intervention cases, the, the vetoes, the votes, all the actions that's happening in the UN have to be more examined on a more nuanced case-by-case -case base. Well, I mean, I think, again, I think understanding the nuance is incredibly important because I think there are direct foreign policy implications, even from this much more dry academic research project. So, for example, there's been a lot of press, and you, know, you can read the latest in foreign policy by Chris Miller, talking about you know, the nature of the Sino-Russian relationship. 
And it's kind of presented, there's sort of two dominant views. It's either feast or famine, that the Russians and the Chinese just, you know, collaborate if and when it's convenient, or that somehow they share clear ideological foundations that are unique to them in opposition to the P3. So this latest, you know, run now, the last 12 months about those being the so-called collusion in these authoritarian states with authoritarian foreign policies. But I think regardless of where you find yourself on that spectrum, it actually does have some direct implications. Um, so one of the things that I've had to address consistently is that, as I mentioned to you about the status dilemma, that China is seeking to maximize its status with the great powers and with the global south. But I purposely didn't say the Russians. And I don't have any sort of evidence to make the claim that while the Chinese and the Russians may both dislike the general, you know, maximalist interpretation of all these liberal norms, so the need for accountability, the need to have protection of civilians, etc., the need to have R2P, I don't find that they have a coordinated position in terms of anything more than being willing to dissent, i.e. that there is any sort of deeper status and identity relationship between these two states that draws them together. And the reason why is I think, again, we've seen a lot of press about, and most recently, of course, you know, at the, at the tail end of last week with their co-veto against um, the Venezuela res resolution put forward by the Western players at the UN Security Council. Um, but the reason why I say this is that, again, this sort of phenomenon of co-veto, co-voting is only a most recent phenomenon. And if you look at the cases where China has the least strategic interests on the line and the Russians have the most. So you look at cases like Georgia, South Ossetia, Ukraine. You can see at the Security Council that Beijing will not follow the Russian line with their own maximalist reinterpretation of sovereignty in these spaces. China is not interested. One would assume if they're just down to having a more transactional, I scratch your back, you scratch mine attitude, that you would see Chinese co-voting on these issues in particular, major concern for Russian foreign policy. But you don't see that. China's holding the line that sovereignty actually should be sacrosanct even for the Russians in, the, in these particular spaces. In the future, do you see as China uh, finds itself, finds its uh, position in the United Nations Council, is it going to be harder for the West to uh, pass the resolutions or, or harder for the UN to take actions in, in future crises? Or do you see China's decisions merging with the ones made by uh, the West? I mean, I, I think at heart I'm still an optimist. Um, but I think the traditional approach, as I understand, is that the P3 are the dominant players in terms of sort of drafting resolutions and being what they call pen holders, the first to sort of start writing content for what resolutions should look like. And so typically they'll agree to what they believe the draft resolution language should be, and then they'll go out and approach the Chinese and the Russians. Once they get enough buy-in, then they'll proceed to deal with um, the rotating members of the council, of which there are 10 states that all take shifts representing different regions of the world. Um, that's sort of the typical view, the sort of very top-down hierarchical sense that the West starts and everyone else basically gets towed along at some point. I do think that that traditional approach isn't going to work. We've seen a recent trend now of sort of the Chinese and Russians putting together their own resolutions. So in Venezuela, you know, there was first a vote for the Russian resolutions that didn't garner enough votes um, the crucial magic number of nine in order to make it 
um, official standing of the UN Security Council. So that's when the Western states put forward their own resolution in full knowledge it would get vetoed last week. But I do think that traditional operating procedure isn't going to work. A, because the Russians and the Chinese are now starting to draft their own language and proactively go about that. But I think more importantly, B, we're starting to see that these states are actually willing to apply pressure, um, are willing to try and build incentives for states to co-join their positions. And so I think, again, you know, traditional diplomacy as it's presented um, in my very shorthand caricature, that I think that may not work. And I think there is evidence to suggest that status-based appeals at, under the right conditions can actually help open conversation um, to help find common ground. So for example, um, in 2014, there was a very surprising success in the Syria case where um, the UN Security Council came to agreement about the need to have cross-border humanitarian aid deliveries into Syria. And if you follow the way that the Australians, um, the Australian reporting, the reporting out of New York, um, the reporting coming out of um, sort of a lot of this Western press, that there was this sort of emphasis that the pen holders approached China and approached Russia with the attitude of real negotiations were going to go on about this text. If we can all agree that getting humanitarian aid is a good idea into Syria, this is a good idea, how can we make it happen? And so real efforts were made to tone down any potential Chapter 7 non-consensual language. They made sure to reinsert language into the resolution that recognized Bashar al-Assad's sovereignty as head of state to deal with the Syria crisis. They purposely tried to track this, these humanitarian aid convoys to enter spaces where um, Assad was technically not in power, having lost some control over Syrian space to ISIS already. So while it was you know, generally reported in the news, these huge headlines that sort of cross-border humanitarian aid operations were going to go into Syria regardless of Syrian consent, and that, yes, that was the tagline, but the details of the resolution had been negotiated to sort of do this in a way that would still give Bashar al-Assad sovereignty over his borders and therefore help China and Russia support the resolution. That's real diplomacy at work, actually benefiting people on the ground that are stuck in a very impossible situation. But that shows that diplomats were very um, adept and very skilled in terms of recognizing what the heart of some of the concerns are for states like Russia and China, that maybe this concern about foreign-imposed regime change does loom large. And so resolution language has to be very finessed and you know very on point to make sure that those concerns are addressed up front in order to facilitate um, action. And again, from what I understand, these status and honor-based appeals that you know great states have to do great things to help lead, even if this is complicated and difficult to do, and that at times appeals like this might have um, particular purchase. How do you think uh, President Trump's America First ideology is changing America's role in the U, uh, UN Security Council, or just in general, that we're seeing a, a wave, a rise of nationalism, populism uh, in, the, in the past couple of years. Are, are you seeing any change in terms of vote, um, intervention, engagement uh, in UN because of those political movements and changes? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the one thing I would say is that 
Um, president Trump is not the first U.S. president to have a healthy level of skepticism about the value of the United Nations, the value of a U.N. Security Council position um, for the Americans. Of course, the U.N. is a very costly activity for the states in terms of paying budget responsibilities, et cetera, hence always that running discussion about if and when the U.S. will make good on its financial backlog of what it owes the U.N. Um, of course, the U.S., at the same time has a wider variety of foreign policy tools and platforms for it to work with. So it has the luxury of saying at times, to hell with the UN, we can go do this by ourselves. Coalition of the willing, we can use outside allied structures, we don't have to go through the UN. But at the same time, the UN has a very particular function in that it is the legitimizing body in terms of making these attempted interventions seen as just or seen as, you know, valued. And that's when you really can't beat it. Even if you are the United States, even if you are the sole hegemon for global politics today, that you still want to sort of see whether or not the UN could be on your side. And so I think, though Trump may not be the first president to have a healthy, you know, dose of skepticism for the UN and its benefits, I think at the same time that skepticism does come at cost for Chinese, I mean, for, sorry, U.S. foreign policy. So just take, for example, um, a very low-level skirmish at the U.N. where they sort of tried to push out. China now has a Chinese national is now serving as the special representative for the U.N. Secretary General to the Great Lakes region within the African continent. It's the first time that there is a special rep that is a Chinese national. And the U.S. worked hard to sort of remove that person, remove this um, distinguished Chinese ambassador, to remove this person from the list and to make the claim that this Chinese ambassador should not take up this U.N. appointment. And the fact that the Americans lost in this debate couldn't sort of back, couldn't get enough support for their own particular candidate, I think tells you something already about sort of the waning U.S. influence. If you sort of bang and yell loud enough that you don't want to use this platform, you don't believe in the value of this platform, at some point you also um, erode your own particular position within that hierarchy and the ability to call the shots. And I think we're sort of seeing that pressure on for the U.S. now. You yourself are not a policymaker, but have you ever thought about going into policy or at least what kind of advice would you give to policymakers today when it comes to UN, China, the US, any of the issues that we, we discussed today? I mean, I think if I was in a position that anyone would actually listen to me if I was you know, making these comments, I think is to really sort of spend time with those that have a career just studying the one very particular grain of rice that they've built their whole career on. And I think those that truly are specialists within the academic sphere, they really do have a real detailed understanding that actually can be very important, especially now that it's like everything is sort of falling into this debate. So the Arctic, freedom of navigation operations, the use of new technologies, what's China? What's China's role at the UN Security Council? Why do they suddenly love to veto? You know, what's going on with demographic trends within Beijing? What about pollution? All of these things, there are people that literally just study a single footnote and they can make the whole career out of this individual footnote that I think that's actually very important because these are the true specialists that have the luxury and the time to actually do the detailed work that obviously policymakers are moving 
with much higher pressure and higher stakes. So I think in that way, my only sort of wish was that there would be a greater communication between the academic specialists and the policymakers that have the real effect in the real world. The name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, so I really have to ask you at the end, what's the punchline here for um, China, North Korea, U.S., any of the papers, research you've done? Um, So I think my punchline here is to take China's shifting position regarding issues of peacekeeping, intervention, and and foreign-imposed regime change to take this stuff very seriously and to regard any opportunity to learn from China as an equal, not as someone who believes that they have all the knowledge and all of the advantage solely in their hand, that I think that's very important. And that not to underestimate these so-called intangible concerns like identity and status, that at times these particular variables can have, under certain conditions, um, very direct and real effects in terms of shifting China's foreign policy behavior. And so sort of paying attention to that, I think, is important. That's a pretty long punchline there. Of course. Yeah. You've given us so many nuances today, especially when it comes to details related to China and, and the other countries' decision-making process in the UN. I never knew those details. Thank you so much for joining us today in the studio, Professor Fong. Thank you very much for having me, Tiger. Thank you. And that's our interview with Hong Kong University Professor Courtney Phone. Her forthcoming book, China and Intervention at the UN Security Council Reconciling Status, will be published by Oxford University Press in fall of 2019. So be sure to check that out. Uh, we'd also like to thank Princeton Center on Contemporary China for sponsoring this episode and for connecting us with Professor Phone. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Uh, we also just made a Twitter account, at Policy Punchline, if you'd like to see more frequent comments and updates we post. Uh, and please visit us on policypunchline.com for more information. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.